This episode of the Police One Podcast is sponsored by Officer Store. Learn more about getting the gear you need at prices you can afford by visiting officerstore.com. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Policing Matters on policeone.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Be sure and check us out on our YouTube channel on the Police One YouTube channel. And you can check me out and our guests and check out some graphics and see the links in our show notes. Well, over the past decade, we've seen some widely publicized across all forms of media. Uh, the West Coast has taken a big hit in terms of policy decisions, police policy decisions, rising crime, booming homeless drugs and mental health issues. I'm sorry to report that the depictions are real. The West Coast Law Enforcement Coalition was established in 2023 with the goal of bringing together the law enforcement organizations that represent the West Coast rank and file to advocate for new laws, policies, and programs that will advance the profession of law enforcement and improve public safety nationwide. The West Coast Coalition currently includes four statewide organizations representing California, Oregon, Washington, and Hawaii, as well as two local representing Alaska. Well, Brian R. Marvel has been a San Diego police officer since 1999. He's served in a variety of leadership positions within the San Diego Police Department. And in 2017, Mr. Marvel was overwhelmingly elected president of PORAC, the Police Officers Research Association of California, a 79,000 member plus organization and is currently serving in his fourth term. Well, welcome to Policing Matters, Brian Marvel, president of PORAC. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you about these issues. Yeah, and I mean, it's high time. Uh, we keep getting bombarded with these new laws or repeals of laws, uh, use of force options being taken away. I have friends across the country who ask me if what they are seeing here on the uh, West Coast, especially in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, is it really happening? Is it media? Is it uh, myth or urban legend? Uh, and I, I tell them, you know, it, it's mostly real. I don't know how exaggerated it, it is on the East Coast or other parts of the country, but, you know, this rampant theft, the rampant breaking in of uh, vehicles, uh, it's happening. What was the impetus? I guess it might be obvious, but what was the impetus in creating the West Coast Law Enforcement Coalition? Well, it was really a, a two-part uh, concern for us. One, obviously, was, you know, all the anti-police activism reform that happened over the last several years and being able to go back to D.C. PORAC goes back to uh, D.C. every tw at least twice a year. And I felt that, you know what, we're not really getting a good reflection of West Coast law enforcement. And, and you know, I know a lot of uh, association leaders throughout the United States. So I started to reach out to, to my colleagues in Oregon and Washington and Hawaii initially. And, you know, they were on board. They were like, let's go back. Let's talk about the issues that we're dealing with on the West Coast. Because, and you know this very well, being with San Francisco, that we do law enforcement a lot different than, say, the Midwest or even the East Coast, just because that we don't have the amount of officers patrolling the streets or in the urban areas like some of these other jurisdictions do. We're very thin police departments. 
So we have to adapt and overcome those situations. And I think that we do law enforcement a little bit different in a sense that California was the first state in the union that had a post-accreditation uh, process. And PORAC was one of the driving uh, organizations to get that started back in the early 60s uh, to really professionalize our profession. So we wanted to take our voice back to Washington, D.C., have these conversations with these elected officials, because I know we have national organizations out there that uh, are trying to talk for law enforcement, but there was no real West Coast perspective in that group or those groups when they have those conversations. And I think the electeds really need to hear what it's like for our folks out on the street. And the other big difference is, is that my organization, PORAC, we're all active officers. So everything we're advocating for, either in Sacramento or Washington, D.C., if we lose our election or we're not elected, we're back out on the street. So we have to live with these laws. And I always say, you know, when you're a retiree, you can sort of drop the bomb because you don't have to work in the ashes. Uh, but I don't want to do that because I will have to go work in those ashes and I don't want to work in those. So I would like to create good policy and not good headlines. And that's really what the impetus was for creating the West Coast Coalition. Yeah. So, yeah, all of that makes sense. And I'm thinking about specific goals. Are there any that are primary uh, in the coalition when, when you go talk to our electeds in Washington, D.C.? What, what are you asking for specifically? Are there two or three main goals? Yeah, we so we come together as a group. We have a pre-meeting to talk about how we're when we get to Washington, D.C., what our top five issues are. You know, one, one of the biggest issues is the windfall elimination provision and the government pension offset. That pretty much affects almost everybody on the West Coast. Uh, and that, that deals with Social Security. And if you have a pension, you're just going to get a minuscule amount of Social Security that you paid in for. Uh, the other big issue uh, that we really focused on was, was the crime and the decriminalization of crime and the open air drug markets. Uh, San Francisco, uh, Aaron uh, Schmaltz, he's the president of the Portland Police Association, but also ORCOPS, which is a similar organization to us. He was talking about the issues from Portland. So we had a created a leadership team. So it was uh, California, Oregon, Washington, Hawaii, uh, and then the Alaska folks. So we had a broad spectrum of what each one of those states was dealing with to be able to go talk to an elected. And, and believe it or not, they were really wanting to hear what we had to say. Oh, that's great. That's good news. Yes. So we've seen some outlandish laws or repeals of those laws that I talked about with awful consequences. Are there some that need a fix as a priority over others? You talk about uh, drugs, and I know nationally, California is not the only one that's adjusted our our drug, our personal possession of drug uh, laws. But I mean, we've turned the car keys over to public health more than a decade ago. And all we've seen is uh, this just tremendous climb in overdose deaths. Uh, you know, in the last 15 years, we've seen overdose deaths nationwide going from 20,000 to topping 100,000 for the last couple of years. And in places like San Francisco, we've had over 700 overdose deaths in San Francisco alone. Is there any talk? Is anybody willing to say that maybe we need to make drugs a felony again? At least maybe isolate some drugs like fentanyl, uh, fentanyl being uh, the, the, the majority of drug uh, that's killing people on the streets. 
Yeah, and that, you know, that was one of our big conversations uh, this last go around over a couple of weeks ago when we were in DC and we talked about fentanyl and the poison. I mean, it's just pure poison being dumped into our neighborhoods. And coming from California, I could be, look, we have a legislature here and you know this, that they refuse to take any action on fentanyl, even though there is a group of people that want to take action. But by and large, the body, the elected body did nothing in regards to fentanyl. There was very few fentanyl bills passed this year, which is absolutely absurd. Going to D.C., they want to do something, but the problem with D.C. Is, is it's a very slow process. There are other topics that literally suck the oxygen out of a room, especially when it comes to funding, budgeting, national defense, Ukraine, Israel, all that stuff. Those are higher priorities, and nothing ever really happens, but it's like the deaths are mounting. The longer we wait and deal with fentanyl and xylazine and all these other drugs that are just this pure poison that's coming into our neighborhoods and our communities— more and more people are going to die. And we're trying to tell them, it's like, you guys are completely dropping off. American citizens are dying every single day because of your inaction. Don't let my state be the example of what not to do. Let's do it on a national level and start addressing this and forcing states to come to the table and deal with these issues. But you know this in California, there is just this huge reluctance to increase penalties and hold people accountable and put them in jail when they need to be in jail. And that is so sad because our communities are being ravaged by this poison, this fentanyl that's coming in. It's terrible. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, like I said, California and some other states have decriminalized Oregon, uh, essentially legalized uh, drugs. Yeah. But uh, federally, there's still uh, class one, schedule one drugs uh, or up there on the schedule list as felonies. And like you say, maybe the leverage is to uh, get some of the states to, to maybe change policies or amend these laws uh, in order to get uh, funding for fighting drugs or um, you know, from the Department of Justice or, or other federal groups. Uh, that's some kind of a leverage. We're also seeing uh, changes in use of force. And I think the false narrative uh, behind drugs that we were just stacking people up in prison was was a big reason why the the drug laws changed and then we see the carotid being used uh, vilified if you will uh as part of the George Floyd incident in which the carotid was not used and yet we had a moral panic and across the country so many agencies gave up on the carotid which was a really effective use of force any talk about that in DC you know, there was no real talk about um, the use of force policies or actually maybe going further to reform those issues, which I think is a good thing because I think the pendulum swung so far over here. Like you said, I agree with you. I think the carotid restraint when properly utilized is an absolute, absolute best tool for peace officers because five or six seconds, it's over. Person's cuffed up. Everybody's okay. Now they've just taken a great tool. We showed statistics on it that the probability of somebody actually dying on a properly is like, it's minuscule, but yet they continued to push this reform. And that's one of the things that we talk about is they would change a law and then next year they would change the same law with another thing. And it's like, we never even got to see what the first change reform that you proposed did uh, and whether that was effective. And now you're changing this. And it's like, we're trying to keep up, 
We're trying to implement these laws, but you're not even giving us a chance to catch our breath with the changes that you've proposed to see if they're even effective. Are they making our profession safer? Because that's one of the things that we try to push when we talk to the electeds is, you know, our job is also to be safe. We want to be in a safe environment. We want to work in a safe environment. There's no other profession outside of the military where they would be like, hey, just go out there and get hurt. And we're OK with that. And then we're going to fight you on trying to get, you know, recovery or long term disability or we're going to fight you on your disability pension. And it's like it, it shouldn't be that way. So what we want to do is, is create an environment where it's safe for the officer, it's safe for the community, and we can get the compliance that we need to address the issues that we're being asked to handle on a mm. daily basis. And then that brings up the big issue of recruitment and retention. So over all these last years, they've demonized our profession. I personally think they've tried to delegitimize us uh, from the get-go. And by doing that, you've created these people that are uh, being held unaccountable for their actions. Uh, you know, respect is a two-way street. It's like, well, you're not respecting us, but we can disrespect you because we can do that. You know, it's like the one finger high. And it's like, but it doesn't work that way. In a respectful community, there's respect goes both ways. But yet over the last several years, all you've done is made it to where people don't want to do our jobs anymore. And now we're having this recruiting and retention problem. And agencies are having to offer these tremendous amounts of lateral bonuses, uh, pay, is going to be a huge issue, which ultimately I think will will probably start getting people to look at the job again. But the reality is they've put so much pressure and handcuffed our ability to actually be effective in our communities that our communities are getting ravaged by these people that are being held unaccountable. And it's, it's, it's terrible to see as somebody who spent 25 years in law enforcement, and I still have several more years left. And from, you know, with your career, and you're seeing what this, you probably never, I never in a million years would imagine I would see this in my lifetime. The amount of uh, what we've gone through over these last three years in, in America. It's just, it's sad to see our profession being so demonized. Uh, and all we're trying to do is really protect and keep our community safe so everybody can can walk to the store unmolested. Right, right. And when you when you talk about the the difficulty in recruiting, um, there's been an attack on qualified immunity, yep. and that's certainly a hurdle that would prevent people from thinking about joining a, a law enforcement agency. And I know some uh, around the country have changed their qualified immunity conditions. Essentially, it's a good Samaritan law for law enforcement that says if you act and something bad happens that you've got an, a, a certain amount of immunity. It doesn't account for uh, you know, civil rights violations or uh, criminal, criminal acts yeah. on people. Uh, but I think that was uh, misportrayed as well. And deliberately. Uh, yeah, deliberately. So there's the attack on qualified immunity. Has that been part of the discussion? Absolutely. There's actually a bill uh, being uh, proposed out of a representative in Indiana to actually codify that uh, in law. Um, although I did, I talked to uh, Sheriff Redford. He's a, a congressman out of Florida. And he actually came back with some really good points on why we shouldn't try to codify it because qualified immunity has a very long history, case law history on the books. And he said, when you codify it through statute, all of that goes away. 
which really started getting me thinking. I'm like, well, maybe we don't necessarily want to go down this path of codifying it through statute because we are going to lose all this precedent through the judicial piece. So I'm going to look into that and do a little bit of research. He definitely got my mind thinking about that because, you know, a lot of people don't understand qualified immunity covers all public employees, not just peace officers. And you're absolutely 100% right. They deliberately portrayed it as if we had this, if we were being charged criminally or civil rights violations, that is absolutely 100% false. Um, it is strictly through the civil process. Um, and it's not even granted on a large part. I think uh, the last study that was done was less than 3% of all applications for qualified immunity are actually approved. So yeah. it, they, they were deliberate in, in what they were trying to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, the last point I want to make as far as, as uh, priorities, Proposition 47 uh, in California, the the state prison system was sued by a couple of prisoners because of conditions and the fact that we were 130% at capacity in state prisons. Well, now we are below capacity and all the tools that were used to release prisoners back onto the streets, including COVID, right? 10,000 uh, prisoners annually due to COVID. Um, now, Proposition 47, we're seeing the unintended consequences of that. Uh, we raised the threshold of felony theft from 400 to 950. And we've uh, essentially declassified felony crimes of theft, um, either by monetary or by act, like a, taking a, a gun from somebody's trunk, uh, classified them as, as we did with drugs from felonies to misdemeanors. Any talks about repealing that, at least here in California? Yeah, there's actually been a lot of talks. There's um, even over two years ago, there was a proposition to try to make changes. Unfortunately, that didn't make it through. Um, there's been talk now to try to make reforms on the retail theft about aggregating it. So if somebody goes into several stores in a day and it goes over the 950 mark, then you could do the you could aggregate that to make the felony and then try to you know prosecute from that point. Uh, there's also an initiative that's being uh, drafted and ready to go for signatures. So I anticipate you'll see that here soon uh, in the state of California. I mean, there's a concerted effort to to want to address Prop 47. And obviously it was billed as a, you know, safer communities and schools. And I think everybody with their own eyes can see that none of that actually happened with that bill. And you're right, you know, uh, public safety and, and law enforcement, we, we said this is, this is going to be a problem and it's going to be a big problem. And, um, you know, you're going forward with something that hasn't been really well thought out, but, you know, the mood of the electorate and the electeds and the media pushing the same stuff, uh, it passed. And uh, here we are, uh, you know, five, six years later, we're, we're suffering the consequences of that. And uh, now they're looking for us to, to try to figure it out and fix it. But, uh, you know, we're, we're being stonewalled and, and blocked uh, by the folks that, you know, the, the folks that are the activists and the, uh, you know, the pro-criminals, they, they have millions of dollars, uh, you know, because they're, the, they're the, the CEO of Netflix or, you know, the owner of Facebook and those types of groups. They contribute millions of dollars to the to those organizations that got all of that stuff passed. Um, so when they see something coming after something that they thought was was a good thing, they're going to try to defend it because they don't want to actually actually have to admit that, you know what, I, I passed a bad bill that's created all these problems in California. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we've seen since the defund movement, we've seen 
some legislators who've had you know horrendous uh, crime uh, in their communities uh, in among their constituents maybe change their tune uh, some refunded police efforts some increased budgets we have advocates like someone like JD Vance who is always coming up it seems with some good legislation to support police do we have uh, that go-to dream team of legislators that we can go to to, to support bills or to, to speak for us in the house well, it's just it's really, um, you know, trying to work with the mod Dems in California and the Republican Party um, and, and trying to to build a coalition with the people that are saying, hey, you know what, I'm concerned about my community and what's happening there. And obviously, you know, some of the electeds and, you know, I'll point to your city, San Francisco or across the bay in Oakland, they're, they're just not going to change. They they are they're true believers. Uh, they believe the criminals are the real victims in all of this. Uh, something happened in their life and it was our fault. It was community's fault. It was the state's fault. It was somebody else's fault except the person. And that goes back to the accountability issue that we started out with. Uh, they're just not going to change their tune. And it, surprisingly, your city uh, recalled a progressive district attorney, Chesa Bodine. But what happens? He gets this cushy job over at the University of Berkeley uh, pushing more progressive district attorneys to run for office. And, and that's the last thing California needs because, you know, we're down to three progressive attorneys in Alameda, LA and, and, Con and Cocoa County or Contra Costa County. And uh, trying to get them out of office is, is going to be real hard, but it's something that needs to be done because we don't need two public defenders uh, operating in a county. Uh, you know, the district attorney has a job. And their job is to protect the community and make sure that it's safe and, and prosecute the crimes that are on the book. They don't get to pick and choose and say, I'm no longer going to do retail theft. That is no longer a crime I'm going to prosecute. You don't get that choice. The Constitution clearly states you have to uphold your job just like I do and you did when you were an officer. That's the way it works. Um, granted, they can pick and choose some cases they may not want to take, but just to say, I'm not going to do any petty theft crimes. They don't have that authority. Even University of Berkeley in their law school came out and said that that was wrong. But yet somebody like Chesa Bodine, George Gascon, Price out of Alameda County, that, that's what they're doing. And that's why we're seeing these horrendous levels of crime continue to go up because there's absolutely zero, zero accountability if you commit a crime in any of those counties. Yeah, with you on that. Uh, I want to talk about strategies and and maybe talk a little bit about some of the guidelines the DAs are supposed to follow and and certainly we've seen them ignoring uh, some of their own mandates. But uh, first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Officer Store, equipping protectors with passion. That's how we operate and it's how we live. We understand that having the right gear can mean the difference between life and death. Our goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford, visit us at officerstore.com. And we are back and I'm speaking with Brian Marvel, the president of PORAC in California, the Police Officers uh, Research Association of California. We're talking a little bit about some of the liberal DAs. It's not just here in California. We've seen them go after cops across the country. Uh, sometimes it borders on um uh prosecution that's not quite up to snuff and we have uh each state has a guide for prosecutors that they're supposed to abide by and yet we see 
one of the DAs that you just mentioned uh, try to make a plea deal for three separate murders for one individual for, I think, 15 years, I think, was the offer. And luckily, a judge uh, turned that offer down, would not approve it. Yeah. But then uh, the turnabout was that two of the three murder cases, uh, the homicide cases, were dropped. So is social media is um, coming up with a, the other narrative, the, the real response, the, the statistics. Social media is huge. It's where so many people get their news. What's been the strategy to, to reach the public and say, hey, what you're hearing is not exactly true. Here are the facts. Well, we try to, <coughs> sorry, we try to really push that out and, and try to use social media to our advantage. And, you know, unfortunately, we're not as effective as the activist groups are because they have all day. That's what they do. They spend all day working on, you know, spreading their message and, and saying how bad, you know, policing is and we need change. We need, that's all you ever hear. We need change. We need change. But it's like, well, what does the change actually look like? And is a good change? You know, I always say, you know, when it comes to things, you know, people are afraid of change because they like status. They don't like status quo, but, you know, you're sort of stuck in this pickle here of, you know, what's good. But if we're going to make change, is it actually good? Right, let's take a look at it and see what are the evidence based to show that the change that you want to go down is something that's going to be effective. And you're right. The the issue in Alameda County is a travesty. Um, you know, letting murder off like that without actually going to trial or trying to find some additional uh, evidence uh, to facilitate making that go happen, um, I think is is problematic. Um, and I think the people though in that community are starting to see it. I mean, Oakland is such a, a, a terrible city in a sense that the crime that they're seeing, the homicide levels, the the smashing grabs that's affecting small businesses. You know, they all, everybody thinks this is like corporate America is getting hammered all the time. But the reality is it's these small businesses that really run our country. They're the ones that are being victimized the greatest because they don't have the resources to restock or resupply or put in the necessary security the second time around or pay for everything. The damage that was caused were like, a large corporation, they have the funds to do that and can probably absorb the cost. So they wind up going out of business and now you have a shuttered store. Look, I just read an article in the San Francisco Chronicle where they said the vacancy rate in San Francisco is the highest it's ever been. It's around 36%. And the reality is, when does that become a tipping point for San Francisco? If they have a tremendously large budget, I think it's like 12, 11 or $12 billion. 14. $14 billion but you have a 36% vacancy base. You're talking about some of your largest corporations, your largest employers in the city of San Francisco are considering to leave. And I think that's very problematic. And the sad part is, and you've been there a lot longer than I have, San Francisco literally was the jewel of California. People came to California to go to San Francisco. But right now, I don't know if that's the case because I don't even go to San Francisco and I'm literally like two hours away just because of the stuff of what's happening down there. And, and I know, look, I know lots of cops work in that city and they're working their asses off trying to keep those communities safe, keep those people safe. And what was really, what I felt really depressed about was the fact that we had some leaders from other nations come and they absolutely cleaned up the, the downtown area. And I'm like, it just goes to show you if the commitment's there, it can be done, but the commitment's not there. And they're trying to turn it around 
with the recall. I never thought you guys would recall Chesa Boudin, but you did. And I have great faith that, you know, maybe the people in San Francisco are finally coming to their senses and saying, hey, I'm a progressive, but we've progressed too far to the wrong side. We want to get back to being a good city and, and, and being successful. Yeah. So are we isolated here on the West Coast or do you see these or do you hear about these kinds of things happening Midwest, South and the East Coast as well? Well, I, I think you see it all over. And I wouldn't say all over. I think you see it in like Chicago. I think you see it in Philadelphia. I was just in Washington, D.C. I guess uh, the carjackings, Washington, D.C. is like the carjacking capital of the United States now. Oh. Get over a thousand carjackings uh, in less in less than a year. Um, just walking downtown, it was it was a ghost town. You could literally, it was like hardly anybody around. And you're like, wow, I've I've come to D.C. I come for the last six, seven years. And it's always been a lot of people, but it's it's completely changed. And I really think it goes back to these progressive district attorneys who refuse to prosecute people and hold them accountable. And some people need to be in jail. I told Governor Brown when he was a governor. I've told Gavin Newsom when now that he's the governor. There are some people that need to be in jail. You're not going to convince me otherwise. You need to hold some people accountable. Absolutely believe in, in trying to rehabilitate people if we get them in prison. But the reality is, if they don't want to rehabilitate, why are we putting them back in our communities to re-victimize and destroy a great area? It's just, it just, it's hard to comprehend. Yeah, and with national recidivism rates well over sixty percent here in California, you're you're right. It's the same chronic offenders over and over and over again. I read about this week. Uh, an individual uh, shooting a, a rival gang member uh, who is awaiting trial for another gun case. So why is that guy out? You're you're absolutely right. Incapacitation, <clears throat> excuse me, incapacitation is needed for some chronic offenders who yeah. clearly have impulse and you know co control. Well, that that dovetails into the zero bail. I mean, you talked about the incident where the you know he was used a gun in another crime. He was captured using a gun on a previous crime, but he's out. And this goes to the zero bail and it goes to those people that bail these people out. Why aren't we holding those people accountable when they commit another crime? Let's sue those people. If you're a victim, let's sue that organization who just bailed that person out because they feel that he's a victim and he just murdered or raped or did something. We should start going after those people. That, that I think would send a message. It's like, I get that you're innocent until proven guilty, but when your rap sheet's 25, 30 pages long, I don't know, you know, that that's pretty telling right there in and of itself uh, about somebody's character. And the fact that you're right, it's, it's a very small group of people, the police officers in the community know who they are, and they continually to commit and exploit these communities. And we let them do that. And it's very sad to see this happening. Yeah. So we have great, um, uh, educational institutions that do good research. We have the American Society of Evidence-Based Research yep. with a lot of cops on board uh, doing the actual research. How is evidence-based policing part of your policy discussions? Yeah, that's actually, I bring that up all the time in our discussions. It's like, we need to start using that more effectively. We need to start using that in a sense of, if we're giving grants out, or we're providing, and, and this is across the board. I even talk like, you know, one of the things that, and I'm not 
too knowledgeable about it, but like the, the homeless issue is, is a huge problem, especially in California. But it's like California spends billions and billions of dollars to address homeless. And I was shocked a while back. The L.A. Times did a story and they said it costs like the city of L.A. like eight hundred thousand dollars to get one person off of the street and into a, a house, a housing type facility. And I was like, why aren't we doing more audits of programs like that? But we should be auditing all types of programs to make sure that they're effective. Let, if there's good stuff that happens, let's grab that and maybe we could apply it to something else down the future. And if there's things that aren't necessarily working, then let's not do those again. But at least as we're moving forward and we're using evidence-based research and analysis, we're creating good policy. And that's what I said earlier on is that we're about creating good policy. So I'm not afraid of having the audits. I'm not afraid of doing the research and analysis that's necessary because I want good policy. Good policy helps everybody. Whether you're on the left, you're the center, you're the right, that helps everybody to make right decisions that benefits the most people possible. And that's really what we should be focusing on, not only in our profession, but all professions and anything that the state or a government touches, it, we should be doing that. Yeah, for sure. So how's the coalition grown? It's this is you're in your initial year. You're in, in uh, 2023 uh, and you've had a year under your belt. What do you expect for 2024 and beyond? We're going into an election year. It's going to be uh, a lot of work. Um, obviously, we'll go back in the spring. Um, it was great to have. So last year we had uh, Washington, Oregon, California, Hawaii. We, we were able to get the Alaska folks to come on, which was huge. So now we're that really true coalition. We're going to ask a couple other states to see if they want to come out because what it does is it opens up doors for us to be able to meet with the electeds from those states, give them a different perspective. They may not necessarily be hearing about public safety and law enforcement. Um, so we're going to try to expand a little bit and also, uh, you know, talk about these issues. Like you said, the evidence-based research, trying to maybe get some more universities that have the resources and the research capability to, to be able to analyze some of these laws that have already gone through. Are they really as successful or are there tweaks that have to be made? Because we don't want to throw out everything if so, there's some good pieces to it. Maybe we just need to make some modifications. And that's what you're seeing sort of with Prop 47. They're trying to piecemeal stuff. That was a very broad constitutional state amendment. So trying to change it would require, any major changes would require a vote of the electorate. So I think they're trying to like piecemeal around it. But I go, that could take so many years. How much longer are we going to suffer through what we're seeing? What are some of the things that we can immediately address right now that we know would be effective in, in trying to drive down the crime rate? try to make our community safer, um, but also tying it always into recruiting and retention. One of the biggest focuses when we were there was, how can the federal government and the local governments help police agencies find qualified candidates who wanna do this job? I personally think it needs to be a media campaign, not geared towards any specific agency, but it needs to be a national campaign. Being a peace officer, whether you're in California or another state, is a great job. You're, 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 you're giving back to your community. It's a, uh, it's a good middle-class paying job. It comes with, most likely comes with a pension, comes with some uh, benefits to, to get people to want to join, but also to give back to your community, to serve your community, but not have to deal with all the negativity. And, you know, one of my buddy Damon is my vice president. He says, you know, 
the the kids today they want to be liked. So when you go into law enforcement, you're immediately disliked. So coming into the profession has been not as, uh, <laughs> as 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 easy as some people think. But we want to find those best candidates possible because that helps everybody. So that always is a discussion for us and something that we push when we talk about whether you know changing laws to crime and also use of force. I personally would like to see a minimum standard for law enforcement throughout the United States, whether that ever happens in my lifetime, I don't know. Um, I think if you look around the world and you look at some of the, the Europeans, you know, to be a peace officer takes about a minimum of two years of training in some areas. I think there's a lot of potential there. California, we passed Assembly Bill 89, which will now require a minimum of an associate's degree at some point to, to become a peace officer. So if we're going to start looking at associate's degrees or bachelor's, um, I don't necessarily think you need to have that to come into the profession, but I think it's something that would we should be striving to get while you're in the profession. So a lot of talking. We get, that's, that's a whole other talking uh, piece, but uh, definitely something to consider when you're having these conversations. Yeah, no, I mean, it's important to me. I, you know, I teach at university and I think uh, – if we could de defer the requirement until graduation from the academy, so many academies at 30 weeks plus have essentially the equivalent units for an AA degree. Absolutely. Yep. So if if we could sort of uh, defer that requirement until completion of the academy, I think we could do it. I know we could do it. So I'd love to be part of that. If our listeners want to become involved and support the coalition uh, the states that you already have, Hawaii, Oregon, California, Washington, and Alaska, maybe branch out to, I don't know who you're looking at, Nevada or uh, Arizona, but um, how can people around the country find out how to strengthen uh, their region, create their own coalition, or to add uh, any kind of service to the coalition that you have now? Well, I think, you know, obviously, if you're on the West Coast and, and like you said, Arizona, Nevada, you know, trying to reach out to their association leadership, uh, you know, maybe asking them to be a part of it. If you're in one of those states, if you're more on the East Coast or in the Midwest, you know, looking towards your your association or your your statewide groups uh, and, and getting them trying to get them more involved uh, at the federal level and having these types of conversations um, obviously, you know this as well as everybody else in law enforcement. We we don't necessarily always agree on everything, but I think the one thing that we do agree on is, is making sure that we continually to improve and professionalize our profession to provide the best possible services to the community that we're servicing and to be able to, to step back and look at the things that we're doing, analyze our profession to where if there's new technology, new techniques, just in the... 25 years I've been on in 1990. I mean, we had those little MCTs in the car. You had to tap the bottom, the top, just to see, get the radio call. And now they have these computers in these cars that literally, they do everything. You don't even have to call communications if you don't want to, to get information in these computers. Um, I think the kids today are, are, the sophistication and the technology is so far greater than just in 20 years when I came on than it was uh back in those days and and you know when you came on it was probably even so much different um we continually improve and and let's strive to do that as we we improve our profession because i think that's what it's about every every profession out there wants to improve itself 
Yeah, well, take it easy. It wasn't quite wagon wheels when I started. <laughs> <laughs> but I hear, I get your point. Hey, uh, for our listeners, check out the show notes. You can find the link to Porak and read more about the West Coast Law Enforcement Coalition. Hey, Brian Marvel, president of Porak, thanks so much for taking time to talk to our law enforcement officers and our audience to, to fill them in on what's happening. And sounds like a great idea. I wish you continued success. Yeah, thanks a lot. And I want to thank everybody out there that's out on the streets. They're doing a fantastic job. Keep your heads up high. Um, you know, I know it's tough times right now, but the one thing about our profession is we always rise to the occasion, no matter what it is. And our officers nationally have shown day in and day out, they continue to rise and meet the expectations and to go on above uh, and they exceed it. So I'm super proud. I'm proud to be a cop just as you are and everybody else out there. Just, uh, you know, just keep moving forward. We're going to get through this. All right. Good advice. Thanks so much. Hey, to our listeners, stay safe out there. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Drop me an email at policingmatters at policeone.com. And uh, let me know what you think. Appreciate you and uh, take care. Stay safe. Talk to you soon.